It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, we are in the middle of Hold Your Fire, but we're again taking a break. I know. What's wrong with us, Steve? We have scheduling issues, I think. <laughs> well, we've got a great guest. That's why we're taking a break. It's a good reason. It is a good reason. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram. Find us at the Rushcast. Email Jerry the Rushcast at gmail.com. The base intro and outro, of course. That is Lex. He's amazing. Find us on your favorite podcast app. Like us, review us, do all those things. And then listen to Jerry's email. What you got, Jerry? <laughs> I have a, a short email. Oh, nice. From Dan. What's up, Dan? He says, I love the new format, if that's the intention, to revisit albums and ask guests to do the musical and lyrical interpretations. Oh. I think that's what we should make the podcast from now on. It's a new format. I hadn't thought of that, but sure. Yeah, sure. Your deep album critiques have repiqued my interest in your podcast. Look at that. Oh, great. Hold Your Fire came out during a major transition in my life from high school to college, and the lyrics had a lot of deep inspirational meaning for me. I've always felt Hold Your Fire contains the best three songs in a row of Rush's entire discography. Wow. Prime Mover, Lock and Key, and Mission. Okay. The messages are uplifting, the music so intricate and iconically Rush, and in my opinion, Getty's vocals, synth, and bass riffs are his best since Signals, if not his best overall. Thank you again for continuing the conversation of all things Rush, Dan. So Dan must have loved last week's episode. We talked about Prime Mover and Lock and Key in the same episode. That's right. And he'll be disappointed that we're breaking up the episodes once again. Well, he's got something to look forward to. Next week, we talk <laughs> about Mission, right? That's right. And today, we've got a great guest, as I mentioned, Jer. Best-selling author who has written more than 170 books. He has 23, Jerry, 23 million books in print worldwide. Rush fans know him for his collaborations with Neil Peart, Clockwork Angels, Clockwork Lives, and their latest, Clockwork Destiny, which will be released on Tuesday, June 14th. Kevin J. Anderson, welcome back to the Rush Fancast. Glad to be back with you guys. And, and you know, I just had to come back uh, because of uh, Clockwork Destiny coming out, and I'm I'm just so exuberant and and so um, happy to talk about it. I just want to make sure that every Rush fan knows about it because this is this is Neil's last book, and just means a lot to me. Well, we're thrilled to have you back. And in the afterword to the book, Kevin, you explain the genesis of the story. The Rush songs, "The Garden" and "Headlong Flight," are the underpinnings of this book. Can you explain that? Well. I write a lot of books and sometimes you're just really just writing a great story. It's, it's an adventure story that you're writing and you're doing things, but there are other books where there's just a whole lot more underneath it. And clockwork destiny is, it, it's just so packed with not, not just metaphors and, and literary themes, which I guess if I said that it should turn everybody off because it sounds like an English report. <laughs> um, but there's also like so much personal weight in it. And we'll get to talking about how the whole thing got put together. But I'm older now. Um, and as you get older, you start to realize that things don't work the way they used to. That I used to be able to do 23 miles in a day on a hike. And now it's like, boy, I'm pooped after only 12 miles in a day. And well, I'm sure some people are still laughing at that. But um, <laughs> and, and I realized another thing that 
I travel an awful lot. I, I used to do book tours all the time. I do comic cons and science fiction conventions, and I'm I'm all over the place. I used to do three conventions a month, whether it was Dallas or Cincinnati or Indianapolis, or um, I'd go overseas. We were in China and Bali and Prague. And I remember uh, like taking book tours and I go on a book tour for uh, with Brian Herbert, who's my co-author on the Dune novels. And he lives up in the Seattle area. And so I'm, I'm up and I'm visiting him in Seattle. We're going to do this book signing. And I was realizing that now that I've done this for so long, I'm not seeing things new and fresh anymore. I'm seeing them again. It's not like, oh, I've, I've always wanted to see the Space Needle. It's, oh, well, there's the Space Needle again. And, and you kind of go back to the places that you liked and you avoid the things that you, you didn't much care for. And this whole underpinning in Clockwork Destiny is uh, our, our hero, Owen Hardy, who is like the, the big main character in Clockwork uh, Angels. He's much older now, and he thought he was retired, but he gets called out on one one last adventure. But he's with his wide-eyed grandson, and so he gets to see the world and have these adventures watching his grandson doing it for the first time. And I personally am doing that a lot because I'm taking my grandsons out to see things, and I'm it, it's sort of a reflection how, on how you realize that, uh, you know, that old Johnny Cash song, I've been everywhere. And you kind of get to this, you feel like you're jaded because, oh, I've seen that before. And I've been to that one. And oh, yeah, another concert at Red Rocks and everything like that. But when you're with a young person who's doing it for the first time, you get to have that exuberance and experience all over again. It's almost, I almost feel like a vampire. I'm stealing his excitement because <sighs> I'm not stealing it because we're both having it now. And then another Another part of it is is kind of this retrospective of looking back on your life. And Headlong Flight is all about that, all the journeys, the great adventure. You know, I wish that I could live it all again. And, and Neil's famous quote, adventures suck when you're having them. I've had many adventures that really felt crappy when I was in the middle of a thunderstorm up on a mountain peak and huddling as the snow and hail sheeted down. But boy, it makes for great stories afterward that you can tell. And so... Headlong Flight was just such a cornerstone of this novel, but but also, I mean, kind of for obvious reasons, because this is this is about destiny and the legacy you leave in life and the mark you leave behind. Uh, the Garden the, the, is just such a perfect wrap up. And I remember I got an email from Neil on the day he wrote that song, and he wrote this email with just like full of exclamation points, and he says. I think I just wrote the most beautiful song in my entire career and it's the garden and he goes on and on about it. And he, he kind of does this. I think I've figured it out that, that the real meaning of life isn't that how much money you have at the end or how many houses or how many cars or whatever, but it's how much love and respect you get. That's the thing that counts. And you want to have as many people to love and respect you as possible. And he was just so pumped by that idea. And and having the garden be the sort of the thematic underpinning for Clockwork Destiny is one. And that's when we see Owen Hardy at the beginning of the book. That's what he has. He's on his his estate, Xanadu. And of course. he's he's the the patriarch of the family. His wife is the, the matriarch, and everyone, you know, loves and respects him. And then he's gotta go out for one last adventure. So and he takes the 
wide-eyed grandson with him. And if you read Clockwork Angels, you know, from the prologue and the epilogue that Owen's kind of this old fart who just tells stories all the time and everybody's bored with hearing his stories, but there's one grandson who gets it. The one grandson who wants to adventure and who sees the sense of wonder in the world. And, and it just really, it really connects sort of like the young wide-eyed version of a person like Owen. And then the, the older, not, not jaded, just, just content. And, and I think that's the point that needs to be made that he's not like this, this bitter, boring old man, he has actually accomplished what he wanted. He is content and he's happy. He is retired and uh, just kind of wants to live on his old adventures. But, you know, new adventures can be pretty good too. So Kevin, you say the novel is a measure of Owen's life and our life too. Did you mean ours as in you and Neil or ours as in all of our lives? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's, it's it, by extension, obviously. So, so it's Owen, but, but also one of the, one of the reasons that this took so long to figure out is we had so many ideas. And I guess just to, to emphasize that uh, the second book in the trilogy, Clockwork Lives, is the story of Marinda Peak. She's a, like kind of the opposite of Owen. And Owen makes a very brief appearance in that book, but that's the Clockwork Lives is her book. And I love that book. Clockwork Lives is even better than Clockwork Angels. And Neil thought so too. When when um, when I finished it, and Neil read the final final draft of it, uh, he wrote me this letter, and he said, "This is surely your finest work." And so that's like you know the best thing that I could get. But I, the, of my 170 books or so, Clockwork Lives is probably my my favorite as well. It just was one of those where just everything fit together, and it kind of said what I wanted to say. And it, it won the Colorado book award and got uh, great reviews. And so I was really happy about that. I honestly think clockwork destiny may be better, but I don't really have enough distance from it to, to figure that out yet. Now, when you were talking with Neil about clockwork destiny, how much had been plotted and how much had been discussed before he, before he um, got sick? Well, there's a story in Clockwork Lives. It's the percussor story where it's guy, uh, the, basically a musician who's uh, suffering from a nerve degenerating disease so that he can no longer keep perfect rhythm and his health is failing. And so he builds this steampunk mechanical drummer to keep perfect rhythm. And all of this was written before any of us knew Neil was sick. But there's a thing at the end of it where he, this Clockwork Percussor performs this incredible grand alchemical symphony for the watchmaker. And with the musical notes and with everything that this performance is, uh, and, and Neil wrote all that because they said, Neil, I can't write all this drumming stuff. You write the drumming stuff. So he, he wrote all that. But it's evoking all these images of the great white north and the lands of Ultima Thule and the, the northern lights and the source of the quintessence. And so we, Neil just said, I really like that idea of Ultima Thule and the source of the quintessence and the Northern Lights. And, and uh, maybe, maybe we should do another story about that. And, and I said, yeah, but, oh, what if we bring out old Owen Hardy and have him do one last adventure? He's got to go up to the Great White North to get the source of the quintessence for 
something or other. And then we started thinking, Ooh, well, what if the watchmaker is winding down and he, he needs more quintessence. And, and so Owens has got to go up there. And, but of course, old Owen can't go by himself. He's got to take his, his wide-eyed grandson with him. So there's, there's that. And as we kept talking about, I said, you know, Neil, if we're going up to the great white North, they've got to meet by in the snow. Dog. <laughs> right. yeah. Of course we've got to do that. And and so it kind of worked like that. And then we had some other ideas for Marinda Peak, but we were really having trouble trying to figure out how do you put those two stories together? And I, I really didn't want to do an Avengers thing where you just cram 300 characters into one scene <laughs> and nobody has more than one line. Uh, and so, I, I mean, sure, we could have just said, sure, Miranda and Owen and your grandson and 10 other people go off on an adventure. But we figured out some things for them to do. But we uh, we would talk about it. And I just kept all these notes because like every time Neil speaks, it's like this line from a lyric. It's like, oh, well, that's a cool quote. And that's a cool quote. And, and I had all these ideas for it. And then we just, you know, I kept this folder. But you know, I think it was four years between Clockwork Angels and Clockwork Lives. And so we just, we were going to do it. And, and we kind of kept talking about it. But we both really, really thought the first two books were pretty darn good. And so we didn't want to just knock out a third one that wasn't up to the quality of the other ones. And then, you know, so we had all this stuff and then Neil got his diagnosis and we knew um, how, depending on which doctor you believed, how much time he had left. And, you know, we had always thought we had all the time in the world, but, you know, then we didn't have all the time in the world. And then whenever I would see him and hang out in the cave or we'd go out to lunch or something, we'd, we'd talk a little bit about this, but, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't the most important thing to talk about. So we got, got a little bit more. And, and I mean, we kind of have the whole framework of what, what we wanted to do. And, and we actually talked about it. And Neil knew that I wouldn't be able to write this until after he was gone. And after he passed away, I just put the notes away. I just filed them. I, I couldn't even look at them or think about it. And it was, I think it was on the one year anniversary of his death that, you know, that's when I was posting things and, and I, I kind of felt this weight of responsibility that we had talked about this and we had intended to write this book and we had a bunch of ideas and, um, you know, suck it up KJA and, and, uh, figure it out. And so I, I got, I got the notes out and I reread everything and started thinking about them. And, and then I specifically went to, uh, Neil's wife, Carrie, and I said, well, Carrie, you you know that Neil and I were working on this, but I, I think I'm going to pull it out, but I won't do it if you don't want me to do it. I mean, just just tell me if you think this should just be filed away or if you want me to to take it on. And she just gave her full enthusiastic approval that, yes, please, please do it. So, so then I had to do it because Carrie said I was supposed to do it. So this has been years. I think we wrote Clockwork Angels in 2011 or 2012, something like that. So then I had to go back and and like reload everything in my head. And the way I had to do that was I had to listen to the audiobook. And that's Neil reading the audiobook. And so all of the, the Clockwork Angels is Neil narrating it. And if you haven't heard the audiobook, I mean, just get it on Audible or I've got 
like some CDs things for um, available for it. I was really scared because here I'm going to be sitting there listening to Neil's voice for eight hours. But, you know, it turned out to be so cathartic. It was like, yeah, he was he really liked that book. And and just listening to his voice and recapturing the, the characters and everything. And and he really wanted to read that audiobook. We were going to get some other reader, but he was he would like go into the studio and he did it in like three days flat because he didn't have any more time on that because he was busy because Rush was going, I think it was the second leg of the Clockwork Angels tour or something like that. Anyway, like he, he didn't have any more than three days. So he recorded the whole book in three days. So I listened to Neil's audiobook of that. And then I listened to the audiobook of Clockwork Lives, which is a bunch of different voices uh, because it's different, different characters in it. Uh, and then, then I was ready. I, I just kind of had it all. And I was waiting for all these pieces to gel. And I like to go out hiking when I'm being creative and thinking. So I, uh, we have a place here in Colorado Springs called Garden of the Gods. It's this really beautiful park with rock formations and things. And I was walking around just trying, because there was like one piece that just didn't fit. I couldn't figure out how to make it work. And I'm just walking around and I'm thinking and thinking. And, and, and finally, I, I, I got the piece and I knew how, how it was going to fit together. And I actually made a, a phone call then because a very good, in fact, one of my very closest friends is Don Perry, who was the drummer for Jethro Tull. I actually didn't meet him through Neil. I met him before I knew he even knew Neil. But Don is his close friend of mine. He's read all these books. He's a very big supporter. He was one of Neil's closest friends. And I got this piece and how it all fit together. Uh, and there's a character in the book, and I won't, I won't spoil it, but the character in the book is named Peridone, which is, of course, Don Perry backwards. Mm -hmm. So I got that piece and I called Don. I said, Well, I've figured out the last thing I needed to know. And the character's name is Peridone. And he was very, very thrilled to be having a cameo in, in Clockwork Destiny. There's another cameo, by the way, who is a wrecker piratical leader in there who's named Captain Scallon, who is uh, from Matt Scannell, who is uh, another one of our very close friends, the, the front man for Vertical Horizon. But so I had all this and the pieces fit together and, and all my outline. And I was I was ready to go. This was in, I think, February. So it was a month after the one year anniversary. And I went out. I I talked to my my dear wife, Rebecca, and she knows that I like to go like off by myself and just do some writing. And I do my writing uh, as I go out hiking. I have a, a digital recorder and I just go out walking. And one of my favorite places in the whole world is the Canyonlands of Utah. Uh, the Red Rock Deserts out there. And uh, I think I turned Neil onto them. He had not been there before and he went out to see them after I told him how much I loved it. And and so I I got myself an Airbnb and I went out uh, and this is COVID day. So like everything's empty. And, and I went out, got an Airbnb and I just hiked around Moab and Arches and Canyonlands for a week. And I wrote 50,000 words of the 80,000 words of the book in one week. It just came pouring out of me. I wrote the whole thing and then I finished it up the following week. And then I went back and started editing it. And so after waiting all this time, after getting ready for it, Clockwork Destiny just sort of poured out of me. And one month from the day that I wrote the very first line, 
The watchmaker was dying, but nobody knew. One month from that, I had the finished manuscript all edited and I turned it into uh, ECW books. So it was exhausting, but I'm glad I did it. So Kevin, you mentioned in the afterword of the book, quite a few rush quotes that help you get through Neil's passing. How ironic is it that Neil himself, in a way, was the one who helped you get through this and helped you finish this book? I think it's appropriate, not ironic. I got into Rush when I was like in high school. And I I got all these Rush albums because I joined the Columbia Record Club and you get 12 albums for a dollar. And I just had to pick 12 and I only knew three that I wanted. And so I just picked a bunch of Rush albums because they looked like they were science fiction. And so I... When I was in, I think, a junior in high school, I had their 2112 poster up on my wall, you know, with the white kimonos and everything. I had that up on my wall, and and Neil was always such an influence on me. And like I would go over and over and over all these lyrics, I would understand, or they would influence me on things. And so as we got to be really good friends, and I would like try to poke into him about, well, what were you really meaning by this or that? And I think he came to the conclusion. He said that he said he thought that I knew his lyrics better than he did because once he had written them, he like after we wrote Clockwork Angels, one of my things uh, I'd asked him. I said, "Can we work on like Twenty One Twelve next? I'll do the novel of Twenty One Twelve. And he was like, "Oh, I'm so done with Twenty One Twelve. That was so long ago. I, I want to do new things and not that." And and so that well, in the Twenty One Thirteen collection, I did sort of do the novelization of 2112 plus a sequel to it. But anyway, uh, Neil's lyrics have gotten me through so many things in my life. And I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it, about how his own lyrics helped me deal with his own loss. But the garden, all I need to do is say those two words, the garden, and that answers everything. I mean, that I couldn't have written it better if I was writing a fictional story about this rock band that their very last cut on their very last album would be that song. I mean, how, how appropriate. Yeah, no, as I was, as a reader, as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking that the story is metaphorical, but it doesn't seem like it's as metaphorical as I thought it was since most of it was plotted out beforehand. Well, sometimes life imitates art, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, we had the whole stories. I mean, there are so many things that, I mean, just in life that that you do that you think, I I didn't plan that, but it certainly turned out to be poetically perfect. And But just some of the issues that we deal with, uh, time is the real anarchist. I mean, I just, I love that quote because no matter what you do, you just wait long enough and something's going to break down. And no matter how, perfectly you maintain your car, it's still going to break down. No matter how much healthy food I eat and how much exercising I do, my doctor is going to find I have high blood pressure or something. And it's, I hate to be maudlin with Disney stuff, but it's the circle of life, right? Yeah. If only there were a quintessence we could all actually tap into, right? Well, I I, I do the beer, I think, but I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> Kevin, j- just like in your previous collaborations with Neil, there are so many nuggets in this book for Rush fans to just grab onto. We mentioned Xanadu, Bytor, and the Snow Dog. I'm curious what Neil thought of all these little Rush nuggets you threw into the book. Did he enjoy that? Well, in fact, I got a, well, let me do another kind of roundabout answer to it because, uh, like I said, Neil 
narrated the audiobook for Clockwork Angels. And so as we are coming full circle, I I kind of buckled down and I thought it's just perfectly appropriate if then I'm the narrator for the last one rather than hiring out some voice actor or something like that. I'm, I'm not the best voice in the universe, but it's mine. I mean, it, it's it's the book that we did. And so I felt like I wanted to go into the studio and record it. And man, that is hard. I, I'm, I'm not going to, I mean, that, that took so many hours behind the microphone. And then, and then you have to listen to the whole thing, which is 11 hours long or something while you're reading line by line in the book. And every time you go, Oh crap, I screwed up that word. Then you got to go back in and pick up that sentence and put it anyway. I did a special afterward for the audiobook about you know what the audiobook and how Neil read the first one and what this this meant to me. But for that afterward, I went through all my correspondence and dug up a bunch of the letters that Neil wrote me when he was narrating Clockwork Angels about his time in the studio and voicing the characters. And while he was reading the audiobook, I think that was the first time he really, really got how many Rush Easter eggs were in the prose. Because he's narrating it, and it's sort of like, oh, that's one of my lyrics. Oh, that's one of my lyrics. And and I was afraid he would think it was too fanboyish. But he said that the way they're done, it's subtle enough that it doesn't jab you in the eye if you don't know the lyrics. But if you catch the lyrics, it's like this little extra thrill. And that's kind of what he he thought about it. He didn't think it was too, I try not to be too overt in, in any place. It's not somebody screaming the lyrics and pointing their fingers at them, but but they're in there. So if you're reading them and you spot them, you, I, I hope you'll be convinced that I'm not faking it, that I really am a Rush fan. <laughs> yeah, I noticed so many of them. It, it really brought a smile to my face as I was reading it. And I'm like, oh, I recognize that one. I felt like I was you know, in the club. So, Kevin, did you and Neil have any other discussions about any collaborations other than this one? Is it possible? You mentioned this was your last book with Neil. Is it possible there's another collaboration with you and Neil in the future or an extension of this book, these characters, perhaps? Um, I mean, any, anything I would call a collaboration with Neil would be kind of stretching it out. There, there, There's nothing that he and I talked about that I could honestly say this is another book that we I mean Clockwork Destiny we really did plan on it together so I I don't mind sharing his name on the the cover with that one um in this universe could I write some other stories cuz it's a really cool universe yeah I certainly could but I really don't plan to uh, I've learned from Stephen King from watching Stephen King don't ever say you're never going to do something because he keeps saying he's never going to do it. And then five years later, he ends up doing it anyway. So I won't do that, but it just feels like clockwork destiny is such a perfect goodbye that I don't want to mess it up by doing Highlander two or something like that after it. (laughs) And how was that first week of writing the book? You said when most of it just poured out, what was going through your mind as you were writing this final story? It, it was a joy. I mean, I'm, of course, I'm in one of my favorite places on earth and I'm hiking all day long and it's February in Utah. So the temperature's like 55 degrees and it's blue skies and it's just 
absolutely perfect. And I'm walking through the red rock deserts that I'm describing in parts of the book. And I was just so delighted. It was like a family reunion to be back with these friends. And I just so easily clicked back into Owen Hardy's mind. And there's, I mean, these books are the closest to me personally than anything else that I've I've ever written. I mean, Owen Hardy is really a lot like me. I grew up in a small town. I was idealistic. I wanted to go out and, and make something of myself and explore the world. And, and I did that. And Owen Hardy does that. And uh, in this case, like I said, it's kind of a, a similar reflection that I'm now a lot older. I've seen a lot of the world, but my grandson sees everything as they're fresh and new. And and like when I take him to a museum, I mean, I go to a museum and I sort of like wander through it and look at some of the exhibits. He's got to read every single thing and every exhibit because he wants to learn it all. And just seeing seeing the world with fresh eyes like that, but also being able to wrap up all this stuff with with Neil and the I think I put it in the afterward about my, the last time I saw Neil, uh, that that we he specifically said we had a perfect goodbye and you can't ask for more than that. And I used that to, stretch, to thread it through uh, the novel. And we'll be careful not to do any spoilers or anything. But uh, these are some characters that I've just had uh, my beloved characters. And I know Rush fans love them too. We, I still get fan letters and social media posts from people. And I just, I, I'm very proud of what I've created in this. Now, you know, I've written for Dune and Star Wars and X-Files and Batman. And I mean, I'm proud of all of my children, but this one is is kind of in a, in a category of its own. And this, I know that Neil enjoyed it. And I just wish that I'd had time to write more of these stories with them. You mentioned, Kevin, that you suggested the Utah National Parks to Neil. Are there any national parks that he suggested to you that you haven't been to yet that you'd like to check out? Hmm. Well, he used to, uh, before the whole big tragedies that happened first, when, when he lost Selena and, and his other wife, he would love to go uh, exploring. And what he had like this National Parks passport book that he wanted to get every single He's a list checker. He wanted to get see every single national park and monument, and he went around. We both did different parts of Death Valley, and we kind of shared our our experiences. And in fact, I wrote there's another one. I, I used to love hanging out in in Death Valley, and I'd go hiking in the deserts. And there's there's one place called Telescope Peak in Death Valley uh, National Park that you can climb to this really neat. It's a mountain. It's a really nice mountain. But but from the top of Telescope Peak, you can look one direction and see Badwater, which is the lowest point in the entire United continental United States. And then you look the other direction and you can see Mount Whitney, which is the highest point in the continental United States. And so I, I told Neil how cool I, I sent him pictures for me on top of that. And I said how cool it is that you're looking at like the lowest point over here and the highest point. And he wrote in his lyrics to a song that he had originally titled Telescope Peak. Uh, he put in from the lowest low to the highest high. And he used that as a metaphor for life at that. Now I'm blanking. Is that Ghost Rider? Yes, I, I believe that. so. Yeah. So, so it was after some of his travels, he went up and I think he climbed Telescope Peak or at least went to the trail or something like that. 
I have not been to some of the ones, the, the Eastern coast ones that he liked a lot. He liked some of the, the seashores and the Cape Cods and things like that, that I personally haven't been to yet. But. So Kevin, why don't you tell us where we can get Clockwork Destiny? I know you're signing books like crazy. Where can we get a signed copy of Clockwork Destiny? Well, I mean, it's ECW Press, so it, it's, uh, you know, it's going to be out in bookstores and you can order it on Amazon and, and wherever. Um, but my, my own website is wordfireshop.com and it's, it's the same price as anywhere else, but I've got, uh, I'm signing all the copies before they go out and uh, it's not out until June 14th. So we're kind of delaying shipping them a little bit, but I do want to show off a little bit that what ECW Press did was this really gorgeous slipcase edition that's all numbered and there is video with this, right? No, there isn't actually. <laughs> there isn't. <laughs> but it looks beautiful, Kevin. Guys, look how beautiful is it. Anyway, there's there's this, it's a numbered signed slipcase edition that is pre-released. So we can mail all those out now. And it's signed by me and by Steve Otis, the uh, uh, the cover artist on it. And actually, I should tell a little bit about uh, Steve Otis because he was a huge Rush fan. He's a Canadian artist. He does comic covers and and some very beautiful and and exotic kind of things. And he had sent me a painting for Neil. He'd done a painting, but he didn't know how to get it to Neil. So he sent it to me if I see if I could give it to Neil. Well, this was in Neil's last. He was he was very sick. But nobody knew. I mean, we couldn't tell anybody. And so I, I kind of I accepted it and thanked him. I said I would get it, get it to Neil when I could. Uh, but then when the news broke that Neil had passed away, then the artist wrote me that you know he understood and he was so sorry. But that was when I was going to be doing a beautiful illustrated hardcover edition of the first collaboration I did with Neil called Drum Beats, and. I was going to just use some creepy clip art or something on the cover. And I said, Steve, would you be willing to do a original painting for the cover? And he said, for a book with Neil? Yes. And so he, he, he painted this gorgeous cover, but then he also painted a different image for the back cover. And then he did, I think, six uh, sketches for the inside of it. Uh, so that's drum beats. It's another thing. And then when ECW Press was going to do Clockwork Destiny, um, you know, Hugh Syme had done the covers before and all the other paintings and he did the graphic novel covers and he did um, a bunch of the other ones. And, uh, you know, Hugh was obviously our first choice, but Hugh thought he had kind of done as much Clockwork Angels as he really could. And so I immediately said, how about Steve Otis for this? And uh, even if you guys don't buy the book, just look it up on Amazon and look at that cover. That, that painting has got uh, Bayator and the uh, the steamship and and it's just a gorgeous cover and we're working to see if we can get like uh, signed and numbered posters made of it that we don't quite have that in the works yet but anyway uh, wordfireshop.com you can get one of the numbered slip cased ones and I'll mail it out right now or you can get a signed copy of Clockwork Destiny and we'll mail it out in a, a week or two. Or I mean, anywhere else you want to buy books, and if you're if you're in Canada, it might be better for you to get it just from a, a your local bookstore because I have to charge you shipping to Canada, which is mysteriously expensive. But 
but anyway, I, I've just really, really loved this long journey and Clockwork Destiny has, I believe it's fulfilled everything that I wanted it to do. And, you know, I just kind of hope Neil would be proud of it. Oh, I think so. He called Clockwork Lives your finest work. I think he'd be even prouder of this one for sure. Thank you. And you, you read it now, so you could actually say that honestly. So I appreciate that very much. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks so much today for joining us on the Rush Fancast, Kevin. We really appreciate you being here. Thanks, guys. Glad to be back on. So, Jarrett, it's always great to talk to Kevin J. Anderson. He is fantastic. Yeah, the book is really good. I was very impressed with how everything wraps up. I'm not going to have any spoilers either, but it's a satisfying ending to things. Yeah, it really is the perfect ending to the trilogy, kind of like The Garden is the perfect ending to Rush's career, right? Yeah, I agree 100%. The book is beautiful. Even if you didn't want to read it, just put it up on your bookshelf and look at it. I know it is beautiful. You're right. right. I mean, you do want to read it. Don't get me wrong, but it still looks beautiful. It does look beautiful. It's gold embossed. It's, it's really nice. So next week, Jerry, we get back to talking about hold your fire. I'm very excited. We're talking about mission and we're talking about turn the page. That's right. And we have some great guests coming up too. I'm not going to tell you who they are. It's a secret. Yep. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, find us at The Rush Cast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Kevin J. Anderson at TheRushCast at gmail.com. The base intro and outro, that is Lex. And Jerry, I hope you have a great quote. Have an inkling what it's going to be. Do you really? It's got to be from Clockwork Angels, right? <laughs> it's not from Clockwork oh, Angels. Oh, okay. It's something that Kevin mentioned. Okay. It's from Ghost Rider. Oh, nice. Carry all those phantoms through bitter wind and stormy skies, from the desert to the mountain, from the lowest low to the highest high, like a ghost rider. Perfect ending. Thanks, Jer. All right. See you later. <laughs>